Welcome back to the second season of Stephanie Hoover Has That Story. I'm so excited to present my second annual six weeks of Halloween celebration, and I couldn't be more happy that you've tuned back in. This week, I'm sharing the fascinating story of the killing of a horror movie franchise, specifically the surprisingly successful and enduring 1985 hit Fright Night. So, how is a movie franchise killed, you might wonder? God knows it wasn't the acting. With the legendary Roddy McDowell leading a talented young cast alongside the incredibly engaging Chris Sarandon, there was certainly no deficit of skill. And it definitely wasn't the writing. In fact, Fright Night influenced several later blockbusters with its unique take on the vampire genre. Now, what killed Fright Night was, ironically, an actual murder and one of America's most notorious murders at that. So gather your crosses, bottle your holy water, and settle into your favorite coffin or er, uh, couch, and listen closely as I tell you the truly horrific tale of the killing of Fright Night. Whether it's history, crime, or legend, Stephanie Hoover has that story. Jump-started by the 1978 blockbuster Halloween, the 1980s were a golden decade for American horror films, in particular the vampire genre. As audiences sought alternatives to slasher psychos like Jason Voorhees and the illusory Freddy Krueger, vampires became the cinematic killers of choice. The vampire tale was already morphing, even broadening to include female bloodsuckers, such as the one played by Catherine Deneuve in 1983's The Hunger. But actor-turned-screenwriter Tom Holland had an even fresher idea. What if the vampires, and therefore the killers, were teenagers? Having already written several successful films, including Psycho 2, Holland pretty easily convinced Columbia Pictures to produce this new script that he called Fright Night. Fright Night combines horror with a hint of humor in a fairly straightforward plot. Teenager Charlie Brewster sees a coffin carried inside the recently sold house next door and becomes convinced his new neighbor is a vampire. Turns out he's right, but no one believes him. But Charlie knows someone who can help him. Washed-up actor and former horror movie star Peter Vincent, who now hosts a cheesy show called Fright Night Theater. Peter Vincent is played by real-life screen legend Ronnie McDowell, who was actually Tom Holland's second choice for the part. Fortunately for McDowell, first choice Vincent Price declined the role. Charlie, along with girlfriend Amy, frenemy evil Ed Thompson, and Peter Vincent set out to destroy the vampire lair, and the movie proceeds to its suitably satisfactory, gory conclusion. Filming began on December 3, 1984, and concluded 53 days later. The total budget for the movie was $8.25 million, and Fright Night was intended for an early fall 1985 premiere. Pre-release buzz generated by an unusually strong ad campaign convinced the studio to not only bump up the release to August 2nd, 
but also to immediately plan a sequel. It was a good call. During its opening weekend in 1,542 theaters, the film earned back 75% of its production costs. By the year's end, it was the second highest grossing horror movie of 1985, edged out only by the second installment of A Nightmare on Elm Street. By all measures, Fright Night was on track to become an extremely lucrative vampire franchise. But especially in Hollywood, looks can be deceiving. Oh, Fright Night was undoubtedly a success. After its robust theatrical run on April 19, 1986, it entered the Billboard charts at number 14 on the most purchased home videos list. Tapes sold for a staggering $79.95 per copy, a price only surpassed by the $89.95 charged for Gone with the Wind. Video rentals were going gangbusters as well, but things at Columbia Pictures weren't going as smoothly. Guy McElwain, head of production during Fright Night's creation, was replaced by a guy named David Putnam. Somewhere in that reshuffling, the rights to a Fright Night sequel passed from the studio to Herb Jaffe, one of the producers of the film. Jaffe's partners on Fright Night Part Two would be a lesser-known entity called the Vista Organization, and the distributor would be New Century Vista Film Company. Now stay with me here because this is where things get interesting. Filming on Fright Night Part Two began on October 8, 1987. Roddy McDowell and William Ragsdale, who played Charlie, were the only two original cast members involved in the sequel. Tom Holland had begged off the project to do a film about a nasty little doll named Chucky, so he didn't write or direct the second installment. It was instead written by Halloween 3 writer-director Tommy Lee Wallace, who also directed Fright Night Part 2. The feeling diverged substantially from the original, but it was overall a solid vampire movie. But behind the scenes, and probably unbeknownst to star McDowell, trouble was brewing. I've been a researcher and a nonfiction writer for a long time, and I'll be honest with you, listeners, it took me far longer than I'd care to confess to establish the following facts, but they go something like this. About six weeks after filming on Fright Night Part 2 began, a subsidiary of a company called Carol Co. purchased the Vista organization. Carol Coe's executive vice president was a Cuban immigrant who'd done well for himself in both the record and movie industries, but was widely regarded as a bully and a corner cutter. In February 1988, the same executive merged two other companies to create an enterprise known as Live Entertainment Incorporated. I'll spare you all of the corporate mergers and details, but in short, Live's business model was to purchase mostly B-movies and turn them into profitable home rentals. And this was clearly the intent for Fright Night Part 2. To the cast and crew's dismay, the sequel premiered at only two theaters, one in L.A. and the other in New York. Still, it pulled in an astounding estimate of $6,500 per theater. Had the sequel enjoyed the same 1,500 theater exposure as the original film, Part 2 could have generated as much as $10 bucks its opening weekend, enough to recoup its budget and generate a profit. But that didn't happen. 
Although additional theaters were added, the increased distribution was minimal, and the film's entire domestic gross came to just over $2 million. Roddy McDowell was disappointed, and one can only assume angry. Not only was this franchise an incredibly welcome revival of his decades-long acting career, it was a project he genuinely enjoyed being part of. Hollywood lore has it that he scheduled a meeting with Live Entertainment's CEO, one the kindly actor would never forget. In fact, it's been reported that McDowell, who, by all accounts, never made an unpleasant public comment about anyone, called this executive the worst human being he'd ever met. Still, McDowell had been in communication with Tom Holland about a third film, and together they convinced the executive to take a second meeting, one scheduled for late August or early September 1989. That meeting never happened. To quote the legendary show business reporter Dominic Dunn, Jose Enrique Menendez made enemies all along the way in his rise to the high middle of the entertainment industry. His funeral was attended primarily by business acquaintances because he had few, if any, friends. Jose was rough, those who worked with him said. He was uncompromising, lacked the polish that most entertainment executives prided themselves on. He did what needed to be done to get what he wanted, hurt feelings be damned. If one believes accusations leveled against him while he worked for RCA Records, Jose was not above dishonest practices such as over-distributing albums to make them seem more successful than they were. So bad was his reputation that a public relations manager was hired to orchestrate his funeral in a way that might make the deceased executive appear more sympathetic. And it wasn't just professional colleagues that held a dim view of Jose. So hated was he by his sons that on the night of August 20th, 1989, two weeks before Jose was to meet with Roddy McDowell and Tom Holland about a third Fright Night film, they pumped a total of five 22-gauge shotgun blasts into his head and body. Yeah, Jose's sons were those Menendez brothers. Initially, it was suspected that the brutal slaying had to be a mob hit. After all, there'd long been rumors that at least one of the companies with which Menendez was associated had ties to organized crime. As a result, the firms Menendez once headed lost revenue, influence, and share value. And their interest in a third Fright Night entry was lost as well. Through absolutely no fault of its own, the playfully fright-inducing films transformed from a seemingly eternal franchise into a two-movie dead end, at least in the eyes of its contemporaries, but how short-sighted they were. Fright Night is now largely credited as the originator of the teenager-as-vampire trend, the seed that spawned later larger blockbusters like 1987's Lost Boys, the film's character, Evil Ed, with his encyclopedic knowledge of bloodsucker behavior gleaned from a litany of vampire movies, also seems to presage the character of Randy in Scream. The movie's biggest contribution, though, may have been raising the vampire back from the dead, at least on the silver screen. There's an urban legend in Hollywood that after learning of the death of Jose Menendez, 
Roddy McDowell called a colleague on Fright Night and asked, Well, I didn't do it, did you? Whether or not that's true, I can hear his wonderfully soft, quirky voice and imagine what must have been the robust laughter on the other end of the line. McDowell never did get to realize his dream of more Fright Night sequels, but Peter Vincent remains one of the most memorable, noble, and courageous of all horror movie characters. Perhaps, as Tom Holland recently promised, there will be another Fright Night. For me, the return of the great vampire killer can't come soon enough. Well, that's the story of how a real-life brutal murder effectively killed one of the most popular franchises in horror movie history. I hope you enjoyed hearing it as much as I enjoyed researching and writing it. As many of you know, I've got a new historical true crime book coming out this year. It's called Pretty Evil Pennsylvania, and it's an anthology of crimes committed by lawless ladies of the Keystone State. Roman and Littlefield's subsidiary Globe Pequot is releasing the book on December 1st, so please do look for it in bookstores and online retailers. I'll also be doing a giveaway on my website, stephaniehoover.com, so stop by and check that out as well. Thanks for listening, and until next week's second installment of the Six Weeks of Halloween, please be well, be happy, and be kind. <laughs>